We're going to continue in the book of Colossians, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or if not, it should be on the screen here. Um, As we work our way through this book, I was figuring it out. I'm not going to hit the passage on wives on Mother's Day, so sorry about that, ladies, but just working through the text here. Uh, This morning, verses 14 and 15 of Colossians chapter 3. There should be an outline in your bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits you can get, either now or later, and all of the printed and audio messages are on the church website as well. Paul writes, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, And be thankful. A little girl stayed for dinner with her friend, first grade friend, and uh, that night the vegetable was buttered broccoli, and so the hostess asked the little girl, Do you like broccoli? The little girl replied politely, Oh, yes, ma'am, I love broccoli. But when the broccoli was passed, she declined to take any. And the hostess said, well, I thought you said that you love broccoli. The girl replied sweetly, oh, yes, ma'am, I do, but not enough to eat it. (laughs) Do you love your fellow Christians in this church? I think we'd all say, oh, yes, of course, the Lord commanded us to love one another. I love the Lord's people. Uh, then why are you and that brother not on speaking terms? Him? You know what he did to me? He ripped me off in a business deal. You know, he calls himself a Christian. I see. Uh, Why are there hard feelings between you and that sister? Well, her, she's a gossip. Do you know what she said about me behind my back? You know, the Lord knows I've tried to be nice to her, but there's a limit on how much you can do. Okay. You know, we love broccoli, don't we? But not enough to eat it. And we love the brethren, but not enough to work out our differences. We're kind of like Linus in the Charlie Brown Peanuts cartoon thing who cries out, you know, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be a member of the first century church? Sometimes we glamorize that and think, oh my, that must have been wonderful. The fact is, there was only one church per city where there, in fact, were even churches. And so if you lived in Colossae and you became a Christian, you were a member of the church in Colossae. Uh, there wasn't a church down the road for Jewish Baptists and another church over here for Gentile Presbyterians and another one on down the road for the Scythian Charismatics. Uh, there was a church in Colossae. And if you had a falling out with another member in the church in Colossae, you couldn't get in your chariot and drive down the road to another church. You either had to work out your differences with the brothers and sisters in that church, 
or the only other option really was to drop out and stop being a Christian. Now today, it doesn't work that way. Christians get their feelings hurt or have a conflict. Well, they just move on to another church. Uh, you know, I mean, why go to the effort? Why go to the bother? Why go through all the pain of working through relational problems? Surely, there are more loving churches than that church. And so they kind of wipe the dust off their feet, and they go down to the next church until, guess what? Something happens there, because churches are made up of people, and if you've noticed, people are not perfect. And so you get your feelings hurt at the next church. Well, there are dozens of options in this town, so they make the rounds going from church to church to church. And you can go that way for years and never need to work through hurt feelings, relational misunderstandings, differences that happen. And so all the while you can smile politely and say, yes, I just love broccoli. Not enough, though, to eat it. I love the brethren. It's not enough to work through relational differences. Now, if that's how you choose to work through or avoid working through relational problems, you'll never learn true Christian love. You'll never learn the um, practical aspects of how the Bible says we're to get along. The truth is, we're all a lot like porcupines. We can get along fine at a distance, but then you get close and you get stuck, don't you? And uh, then we move away. But if every time you get stuck, you move on, there's a joy that you won't learn, a joy of a deeper relationship, deeper understanding that comes through the difficulty of working through these differences. And besides, if we don't work through the differences, We're just like the world. That's how the world operates. And so the testimony of Christ in the local church um, is going to suffer. Now, in Colossae, there were these false teachers who were spreading their philosophies and their uh, knowledge, they claimed. And as we saw at the end of chapter 2, they said that by following their legalistic rules, that was the way to um, spiritual growth and so on, insight. But those kind of things inevitably lead to pride and selfishness where people start dividing into camps. Well, I know this and I know that and all of that, and there's conflict. And so Paul, in chapter 3, shows how Christianity, first and foremost, means being identified with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, We have now been raised up with Christ, and so we're to set our mind on those things above. And then he goes on to show that that means we have to put off the old man with its practices, and he names sexual immorality, anger, lying, all of that. And we have, in fact, now put on the new man, which, as I explained, is a corporate new man. It involves putting on Christ. And since Christ is both the head and the body, his church, putting on the new man involves putting on Christ, who is our all in all. We saw that. And the old distinctions, Greek and Jew, uh, barbarian, Scythian, all those things, that doesn't matter. Christ, Paul says, is all and in all. And then 
He goes on to say that because we're in Christ as this new man chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, we are to put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, he says, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then, moving on to our text, he says, As the uniting bond of maturity, we are to put on love, not in word only, but the kind of love that eats the broccoli, the kind of love that works through relational problems in a way that exalts Christ and that shows itself in peaceful relationships in the church. And so the practical implication of putting on the new man uh, in Christ is that we work out our relational differences in the body of Christ. So Paul is saying here that practical love shown in peaceful relationships must be our priority in the body of Christ. Now I want to give you an expanded paraphrase of these two verses that kind of explain the meaning. What he's saying here is, around all of these character qualities that he just listed, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, wrap love, and it's the ligament that joins the mature members of the body together. And then let the peace of Christ, which he secured at the cross, uh, the peace that broke down the barrier between these various groups, and made all of you different people into one new man, let that peace be the deciding factor in your hearts in any conflict. And be grateful. Be grateful both to God, who has saved you and made you uh, a member of his body. Uh, He called you, he chose you, as we saw in verse 12. He called you to be members of his body and be grateful toward one another. So Paul's first point is that practical love must be our priority in the body of Christ. And here I'm focusing on verse 14, where he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Four things I want to point out there. The first one is that Paul's command would not be necessary if love were automatic or effortless, Uh, for us as believers. Again, sometimes I think we idealize the church and we think it's just one big, happy, loving family and there are no conflicts, there won't be any hurt feelings and so everybody just gets along and sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, I just felt the love the minute I walked in the door and I always think, just wait, just wait. I'm glad you felt the love, but, you know, if you go beneath the surface, there are going to be inevitable clashes and personality differences and misunderstandings and all of that. And that's true of any family. I don't know of a happy family that doesn't occasionally have misunderstandings, hurt feelings, conflicts, differences of opinion, all of that. So the point is this. Whenever you see a loving church or whenever you see a loving family, you know that they are committed to work out their differences in a spirit of Christian love. 
Uh, it's inevitable. Now, we wouldn't need the command that Paul just gave us to be kind, uh, to be patient, to bear with one another, to forgive each other if we all got along. And in verse 13, Paul assumes somebody is going to have a complaint against someone else. That's why he wrote these verses. And so the command to put on love above all these other virtues assumes that life in the church is going to be less than perfect, and we have to work at it. We have to um, maintain and restore loving relationships with one another, and just moving to the church down the street shouldn't be an option. We really need to be committed to one another to work it through, unless there's some major doctrinal issue or moral issue that's being neglected in the church or uh, adopted by a church. A second observation here is that love is not a minor or an optional command for believers. Uh, There are at least 55 separate commandments in the New Testament, direct commandments to love one another, And besides that, there are many other exhortations like the one in verse 12 to put on loving qualities like compassion and kindness and patience and all of that. And certainly we can't look at them all, but I want to give you a fair sampling just so that you see the impact, the emphasis the Bible puts on love. Starting in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies. That's Kind of the hardest one, isn't it? Love your enemies. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, after Jesus states that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our being, he adds, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then in John thirteen thirty-four and 35, a familiar command, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then in verse 17, he repeats, This I command, that you love one another. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And then the passage that Tom looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. But now faith, hope, Love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then the first verse of chapter 14, Paul says, pursue love, or as Moffat paraphrases, make love your aim. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but Faith working through love. Uh, Galatians 5.13, the end of the verse, and verse 14, Through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled 
in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.22 begins, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Philippians 1, 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. And then 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. And those are just a few of the references. I didn't go to 1 Peter or, or 1 John. The theme of love there is recurring. In fact, John really makes love the mark or one of the tests of true Christianity So my point is, we can't brush this command aside or say, well, you know, it's not that important. It's hugely important. The third observation is then to obey this command to love one another. We need to understand what biblical love means. Because sometimes people think, oh, love is this warm, fuzzy feeling I get. Or, you know, loving people are the ones who always hug me and all of that. And That may be an expression of love, but love is not primarily an emotion. I think the emotions have to be involved, as I'll explain in a moment. But if love were primarily an emotion, it couldn't be commanded, because you can't work up warm, fuzzy feelings if you don't have them. And Paul commands us, Jesus commands us, to love one another. I think to see love personified, look to Jesus, um, And if you've noticed, Jesus wasn't always warm and fuzzy. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. That's what he said to Peter. You know, in Matthew 23, he berates the Pharisees and the scribes, calls them hypocrites. You brood of vipers. You know? Um, He deliberately provoked the Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, by healing on the Sabbath. He could have waited a day and been nice. But Jesus wasn't always nice. But Jesus was always loving. So you have to define love by looking at Jesus and saying, ah, that's a loving thing. That's a loving way to relate to people, how Jesus related to them. Now, I, I devised a... Definition, it's derived from the verse we read in Ephesians 5.2 of um, Christ offering himself as a sacrifice for us. Ephesians 5.25 where Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Um, and just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Tom quoted my definition last week, but let me repeat it. Love is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment which shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. So the core of love is not emotion, it's commitment. It's a commitment to another person. And the commitment isn't, I'm always going to make them happy, I want to make them holy. I want to see them glorify God, because that's the highest good for every person, that we all grow to be like Jesus so that our lives 
glorify God. And that means sometimes love gently has to confront another person. And the aim is not to put them down, it's to help them grow to be more like Christ. Uh, Biblical love is self-sacrificing because Jesus is our supreme example. He gave himself on the cross. And so to love another person means you lay aside your rights, uh, you lay aside your comfort, and you do to that other person what you would want done to you, the golden rule, if you were in their situation. And so what I'm saying is convenient love isn't love at all. Love has to be inconvenienced at times. Ah, I really wanted to do something else. I need to lay that aside and serve this person. That's love, self-sacrificing. Biblical love is also caring, and that's the emotional side of it. Um, If you ever have to confront a person, make sure that you really, really show genuine concern for his or her well-being. Uh, You don't go to blast the person. You go to speak the truth in love. You do it kindly. Love is kind. It's caring. The biblical love shows itself means it's not empty talk. Um, It takes action. To illustrate, it's not enough husbands to say to your wife with very much sympathy and with great kindness, You know, I'm sorry, honey, that you've got to do all those dishes and then get the kids bathed and get the kids into bed and then finish doing the laundry. I'll pray for you. Well, you know, at least on the commercial breaks when my game isn't uh, at the exciting point, I'll pray for you. That's not biblical love. Biblical love shuts off the game, gets up, and helps your wife. It's that kind of practical thing. And again, the aim of love is to present every person mature in Christ, as we saw in Colossians 1.28, so that God will be glorified through each person. And then, finally, just note that biblical love is the basis for mature Christian unity. Now, some commentators interpret uh, when Paul says love is the perfect bond of unity, that love binds together all of the virtues that he mentioned in verse 12 and verse 13, kind of like a belt or a sash binds all your clothing together. Um, Others say, however, that Paul means that love is the quality that binds the various members of the body of Christ together in perfect or mature unity. And the word perfect is used in the Bible for mature And uh, the word bond is the same word we encountered back in chapter 2, verse 19, when Paul said that the entire body is being held together by the joints and ligaments. A ligament holds the various parts of your body together. And since Paul's concern here is not the unity of the virtues, but rather the unity of the Jew and the Greek and the uh, Scythian and barbarian and the slave and freeman all to be one in Christ, my understanding of it is Paul is saying that biblical love is what binds us as various different parts of the body together as we grow to maturity in Christ. He has a similar thought in Ephesians chapter 4 where he says we're to grow up into the unity of the faith as we all grow to be mature in Jesus Christ, and then the whole body works together in love. As you know, 
there are certain fundamental doctrines that we must hold to or we cease to be Christian. And whenever you talk about unity, there are always people that seem to set aside those core doctrines, and an example of it will happen this week at one of the liberal churches in town where they're going to have an interfaith prayer service on the National Day of Prayer where the Buddhists and the Hindus and the native shamans and everybody gets together and they all pray together. That is not biblical unity. We have to hold to the fundamental doctrines of the faith, but we need to remember at the same time love is a fundamental practice of the faith. So how we hold those doctrines in love is critical, love as I defined it a moment ago. Um, I have seen people, and they hold to the fundamental doctrines of the faith, but man, I wouldn't want to live near them. They're, they're difficult people to get along with. You know, they're right, and boy, they're going to show you they're right, and you know, stay out of their way, because they'll just mow you down. That's not the right way to hold to the fundamental truths of the faith. Uh, We are to do so with love. And uh, Paul goes on to show how biblical love then works practically in the church in verse 15. The practical love, he says, is shown in peaceful relationships in the church. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Again, let me point out four things here. First of all, to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, you have to have the peace of Christ in your heart. In other words, the peace of God, peace with God, that comes when you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, is the basis for then having peaceful relationships with one another. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, He himself, speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace, who made both groups, and in the context he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And that's a reference to in the temple, there was about a chest-high wall that divided the court of the Jews, uh, Gentiles, from the Jews. The Gentiles could go into the temple up to that wall, and there was a sign on the wall that said, if you're a Gentile and you go past this point, your life is in your own hands because you're going to get murdered. Uh, So there was this dividing between Jew and Gentile. Paul says, in Christ, that's broken down. It's broken down. And so these, these two groups could now live at peace because Christ was their peace. They had trusted in Christ. And in order to do that, you might say, well, you know, the Jews and the Arabs are living in peace right now in the Middle East. Yeah, on the superficial level. You know, they may not be firing at each other at the moment, but there's not peace in the heart. To have peace in your heart with someone who is very different than you Someone maybe you were raised not to like because of their race or their background or whatever. To have that kind of peace, you've got to know Christ in a saving way. He's got to change your heart. And if you've never come to Christ and said, Oh God, I need your salvation offered to me in Jesus. That's where peace in the body of Christ begins. Peace with God 
through faith in Jesus Christ who gave himself on the cross for all our sins. And without that, any peace is just going to be kind of like the Jews and the Arabs today. It'll be superficial. A second observation here is that to have the peace of Christ then rule in your relationships, Paul says, remember that God called you to Christ, and that includes being a member of his one body, the church. He says, indeed, to which you were called in one body. Calling refers to God's effectual call in the gospel, and it's based, as we saw last time in verse 12, on the fact that God chose you for salvation. Now, when God saved you, the Spirit of God baptized you into the one body of Christ, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, and all of that. Um, And, you know... Some of us probably, if we had our pick, would pick different brothers and sisters in our natural families. But you don't get that choice. You're born into a family, and you got the brothers and sisters you got. Well, it's the same in the body of Christ, you know. You might pick different ones if you had a choice, but you didn't pick them. God did. And here we are. And you think of with some of them, Lord, why did you pick that one, you know? That is not the one I would have picked, but you don't have that choice. You've got to get along with the ones the Lord picked. It's your family. And what I'm getting at is this. The fact that God called you in Christ, he chose you, he called you, he placed you in the body, means you've got to be committed to the local church. You've got to be committed. And if all you do is attend church occasionally when it's convenient, and you leave, and you never get to know your brothers and sisters, and you never are involved in serving in a local church, uh, that's very, very common in American Christianity today. You know, we have this consumer mindset where you, you pick a church like you pick a fast food restaurant. I like Subway. I like Quiznos or whatever, you know. So you go there, but if they do something to a, you don't like... Yeah, I'll change and go to another one. But there's no relationships. You're just a consumer. And I hope you're not just coming here as a consumer. You, you need to get involved with your brothers and sisters on some level. And you need to ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to serve in the body? Now, if he's called you to himself in salvation, then you're called to Christ. And Christ is a body. You're called to one body, as he says in verse 15. A third thing to note here is then to have peaceful relationships, you have to let Christ's peace be the deciding factor in how you relate to other believers, especially when there's a conflict or a misunderstanding. Now, track with me here. I think verse 15 is one of the most misused, misapplied verses in the Bible. And I have heard some highly respected Bible teachers, I won't name them, But they pull this verse totally out of context, and they say, this is how you determine the will of God. Do you have the peace of God in your heart? That's how the will of God is determined. Uh, That may be true, but not based on this verse. This verse, in its context, has absolutely nothing to do with how an individual determines the will of God for his personal decisions. It's just not in the context. The context here is corporate. 
Paul is talking about love and peaceful relationships in the one body of Christ. He uses that phrase, one body, there in verse 15. That should determine what is he talking about. He's talking about how to get along in your relationships in the local church. He is not talking about how you determine God's will for your life. And the peace he's talking about isn't an inner subjective feeling of peace. And that's greatly abused when people seek God's will. I've had, I remember one time a brother came to me with a big smile on his face. I said, what's going on? He said, the Lord has given me a peace about divorcing Carol. You know, they weren't getting along. And I I spent three hours with that guy convincing him that is not the Lord's peace. You're just escaping conflict. And you need to work through it with your wife. Thankfully, it was one of the rare times he took my advice. Uh, the rare times people take my advice, I should say. And uh, last time I heard, they were still together. But he's not talking here about inner peace. He's talking about the objective peace that Christ secured at the cross. He himself is our peace, as we saw in, in Ephesians 2.14. He broke down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And then Paul goes on in Ephesians 2.15 and says this, So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So he's talking about the relational peace that Christ secured on the cross that broke down this huge divide between Jew and Gentile. I mean, these people despised one another. And now they're one because of what Christ did on the cross. And then the word translated rule means to act as an umpire. And it focuses on making a decision in any given situation. But again, the decision here is not a subjective piece that you determine God's will by. What Paul is saying is this in the context. When you're faced with either a potential or a real conflict among believers... Decide how you act, decide what you're going to say based on the peace that Christ secured on the cross between you and that brother or you and that sister, no matter how differently the two of you may be. The fact is, because of Christ and the cross, you're now one body. So let your behavior, your attitudes, your nonverbal communication, your verbal communication, everything be governed by the peace of Christ and by the objective of maintaining and deepening the peace that Christ established. Um, it's similar to what Paul said in Romans fourteen nineteen, where he said, uh, I believe the best reading, there's a, a textual variant, but he said, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So what he's saying is you put the peace of Christ into shoe leather by seeking peace in difficult relational situations, realizing I'm not called to be an individual Christian. I can't pack up and go down the road and and start attending another church. I am one with this person because of Christ. We're one body. You know, if you got in a, a fit of anger and you took a hatchet and chopped your hand off, you'd be pretty stupid. That's a vital part of your body. But we do that in the body of Christ, don't we? We get mad at a brother or sister, and we cut them off. I'm not going to be with them. You just cut off part of the body. 
How can you do that? We're all one body in Christ. And you may not like that person, you know. I'm not particularly fond, maybe, of my intestines, but I'm glad they work. You know, they're part of my body. And when they stop working, my body's got trouble. And so we're all part of the same body. And so everything we do should be aimed at peace in the body if we can to maintain the unity with that other person. And then, the clincher, to have peaceful relationships in the church, Paul says you must be thankful. And I believe he's talking about two directions. You must be thankful for your salvation, and you must be thankful for your brothers and sisters in the one body of Christ. I think Paul added be thankful because he was not stupid, and he knew that we would all be inclined toward a superficial, external-only peace, not on the heart, because we're all wired to look out for our own interests. So we might say, well, you know, I'll meet him in the middle, but I can, I can only do so much, and then he's got to do his part. And so we, we kind of are like the, the negotiations for peace in the Middle East, you know. It's, it's sort of a truce for a while and a standoff, but it's not on the heart. And so Paul adds this phrase, be thankful. He pulls the plug on just an external peace and says, be thankful. And what he means is, grant the peace that you should because your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God. He grabbed you when you were in the gutter. You were his enemy. You were sinning. You were hostile to him. And he saved you and he forgave all your sins. And he made you a part of of his body, Christ's body, the church. And so when you're wronged by a fellow Christian, don't focus on your rights that were violated. And don't gossip to other believers and go and say, you know what he did. And try to line up, you know, your side to back you in the situation. And don't throw a pity party. and, And don't develop a martyr's complex. But rather... Seek and extend Christ's peace to the other person as you realize that the one who offended you is a member of the one body. And the way you do that is to say, Lord, I am so thankful that you were gracious to call me to salvation when I was your enemy. And uh, so you focus on God and all of his blessings, not on the offending party or on your offended rights. And then you extend that thankfulness, not just toward God, but toward your brother or sister. As you remember, you know what? God graciously saved him too. And yeah, he's got some things that rub me the wrong way. And yeah, I probably wouldn't have picked him, but you know what? God did. God did. And God loves him. And uh, he's got some rough edges, in my opinion, but You know, we're one in Christ, and so I can extend that to him and use that as a basis for working through these differences and working on reconciliation. And your desire should be that he would grow, but also that you would grow through this conflict. And as you work it through, that happens. You grow. And the ultimate goal isn't just reconciliation. It's glory to Christ, isn't it? It's glory to the Savior that the world would look and say, how did that Jew and that Gentile get along? 
You know? Now, those people in the world, they fight like cats and dogs. And here in the church, they're loving each other. Wow, there must be something there. And so, practical love demonstrated in peaceful relationships should be our priority in the body of Christ. There was a Bible scholar back in the 4th century named Jerome, and he reports that when the Apostle John was very old, he was so weak that they had to carry him into the church meetings. And uh, this is the man who, along with his brother James, Jesus nicknamed the Sons of Thunder because they had explosive tempers. You remember the case in the Gospels where, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them? You know, I mean, these guys were fiery. But John, as he grew in Christ, became known as the Apostle of Love. So they would carry this old man into the meetings, and at the end he had to have help, but he would always stand up with people supporting him, and he would deliver a word to the church. Little children love one another. That was his message, and he would sit down. Next week, little children love one another. Well, this went on. And people were thinking, the old guy's got his brain stuck, you know. He's just kind of on a one-track thing. And so finally somebody tactfully asked him, uh, uh, why do you constantly repeat the same message? And the wise old apostle said, because it is the commandment of the Lord and the observation of it alone is sufficient. So I come back to ask, do you love broccoli? Do you love it enough to eat it? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love them enough to work through relational problems so that the peace of Christ in the body is going to show a lost and hurting world? Those people are different. Look how they love one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? By this, they will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love isn't just something accidental or superficial that just happens once in a while. No, it's always the result of work, working it through. Love shown in peaceful relationships should be prime importance for everyone who calls Jesus Lord. Dear Father, it's hard as we die to self and live to Christ. It's hard in our marriages. It's hard with our kids. It's hard in the church. And my observation is, Lord, that it's much easier in the church just to bail. Go down the road. Stay superficial a while. If you get your feelings hurt there, keep on moving. And I know that's not your will for your church. So I pray that this church would be known as a body where we really love one another, even in spite of our differences, that we work through the differences, that we genuinely care for one another, that the world might know that you love sinners and sent your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're rejecting the love of God. 
The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God invites you to come and receive the love of Christ, forgiveness for all your sins, simply by receiving his gift by faith. I encourage you right now in your heart just to do that, to say, Lord God, I deserve your judgment, but I receive your mercy in Christ. Father, I pray you would work in hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going